So bringing you greetings on behalf of Oklahoma Bible Academy. I do love um, teaching to a room full of OBA background folks um, because I know uh, there is the ability to uh, go, go a little deeper maybe than the normal congregation with an assumption of some biblical literacy. Um, after all, we should have a school that is named as such, um, so we should know it. Um, so our, this congregation has been committed to formal Christian education for several decades, um, and your partnership with us um, is vital to continuing to build upon the 111 years that God's Word has been a critical piece to the learning process of the next generation. Um, if since God is true, I should say, since God is true, since God created, since God has spoken, if education is to have to deal in truth, then it seems imperative that God and his word be vital and integrated and immersed in what is being taught. After all, we only have our kids for 18 years in our home. What do we really want them to learn? while we have them, and who helps us accomplish what we really want them um, to do. And so OBA has been partnering with families to be able to do that. So in representing this ministry partner of this church, it's with joy and appreciation to get to open up God's Word together with you who have been faithful to His Word um, this morning. Quick OBA plug to our shared community here. Um, September 30th, October 1st is our homecoming weekend um, for our Wall of Christian Commitment ceremony. Mr. Richards is going to be inducted into the Wall of Christian Commitment. So I'll be at 9.45 on Friday. We've got the football game. That afternoon, you can come and watch a couple of your church members flourish um, on the athletic field. Um, and then the auction is that Saturday morning, October 1st, where we can come and have fun supporting the ministry of the school uh, together. So September 30th, October 1st, that big weekend of appreciating the ministry um, of OBA and how it's impacted generations. Um, today is 9-11. Like many of you, I remember vividly where I was. I was between my first and second classes um, in college in my sophomore year, and I'd gone into the student center and was watching the big screen when the second plane hit. Um, and knew that the world was going to be completely different from that point forward, I would like to give my, thank, my thanks on behalf of me and my family, uh, for those of you all that have served during the war on terror in protecting uh, my, me and my family um, these last um, several years now. And as God redeems things, this date was redeemed for my wife and I by God's grace, as today is our oldest child's 14th birthday. Um, have you been in a situation where you could cut the tension with a knife? And then in that context and in that situation, you were asked a question that was the knife that was going to cut the tension. Or it was going to be the fuse that lights the fire of the already loaded up powder keg. Maybe a tense situation where the question that is posed to you 
is posed in such a way that it's yet simply a yes or no. It's an either or, and whichever option you pick, it's going to be wrong to half of the group there, or it's going to make another side happy and offend another group. You're forced to pick between two different sides of a controversy. We've kind of found ourselves in a lot of these situations the last couple of years where we're asked a question that is pregnant with much more meaning than just the question on the surface asks. And we're in this one of these scenes in Jesus's life. And today with this scene, um, I hope that we look at this and understand the timeless practice of reading the scripture literally and literally, which is a practice that is in decline in our culture. But we want to look at that this morning and see from this episode of Jesus's life, the story of the words and the work according to the dramatically converted tax collector, the disciple Matthew, who wrote for primarily a Jewish audience in the first century to portray Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So we're getting ourselves into the story and understanding some critical things before we look at the details. Um, Of the four four Gospels, Matthew uses the most Old Testament quotes, allusions, and he writes with an assumption of a comprehension of the Old Testament. And we will see that as being really important to understanding this passage well, that the, that the original hearers both in Jesus' time and 30 years later when Matthew was writing, both original audiences had some background knowledge that's really important to grasp why these people left the conversation with Jesus amazed or marveled at his answer. So let's look down at verse 22. And we want to start the end of the scene and then work our way backwards to see how these people that we find out are trying to trap Jesus in his words, why they left amazed and marveled. So the first thing we got to look at in verse 22 is who are the they? Who are the they that ends? We're going to look at who were they, what did they ask, and what did they hear, and then we'll come to that, of why they were amazed and what it is that Jesus said that was so amazing and why we should be amazed by it today as his people. So the setting of this episode, the scene in Jesus' life, it's Tuesday of Passion Week. In the third year of Jesus' earthly ministry, but the majority of it has been in Galilee, But his reputation is well known of who Jesus is and what he's been teaching, the miracles, the signs. What will Jesus do when he gets to the big city with the wealthy, intellectual, and politically powerful people of Jerusalem? Now remember, Passover week is religiously significant and had been for 1,500 years to the Jewish people. It was crowded and it's bustling in the temple courts where Jesus finds himself. The political tension is high because it's during Passover week. Remember, this is the festival that celebrates God delivering from the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt, where they had been enslaved 
for the 400 years prior. This is celebrating God's salvation of deliverance for them, Passover, his atoning sacrifice. The people find themselves at this time, not under Egypt, but that is a potential parallel situation. They find themselves under the bondage of the Roman Empire and Caesar, like much of the world was at that point. And they were looking for their independence, and they were looking to express their covenant, and they were looking forward to this God who is faithful, who is going to come and deliver them again. And so they're looking for a Messiah with that authority to come and to overthrow their oppression. But of course, those with the authority in the religious community did not approve of Jesus and they were looking. So who were the they at this time? Jesus had been quite offensive. We see that track through his ministry where in the end he begins to correct in a prophetic sense those in leadership and with authority. Now in this particular scenario, we have an interesting set of people that have united to come together to trap Jesus in his words. We find this kind of obscure group of people in the scripture called the Herodians. We don't see them a whole lot else. Otherwise, we see it in non-biblical text uh, in the first century where they were supportive of, of King Herod. King Herod was the appointed vassal king. He was the puppet king of the Caesar for that time of Palestine and had a lot of authority and had a lot of wealth and had used that to build himself up. So the Herodians were pro the Roman government. They were pro they were pro the governing authorities and structures that were happening and working and cooperating with them. Thus their sect was named after the that figure. So We have this group of people, and then we have their opposite group in culture and society. At the time, we have the Pharisees, and they're the more normal antagonist to Jesus that we see through the Gospels, where we see them regularly showing up, and their salvation that they missed was understanding that it was not about the rules of the Old Testament, but that it was always by grace, through faith, God's salvation. And that salvation does not come by the obedience to that, but by the grace of God in his atonement that he has provided. It was that way in Egypt. It was that way through the sacrificial system. And it's that way now for you and I through the blood of Christ and his sacrifice that God has provided, which started back in Genesis chapter 3 when God was providing atonement for Adam and Eve's sin. It was the sacrifice of a lamb that started the whole salvation process. So we shouldn't be surprised that that's the theme that continues all the way through Scripture. But the Pharisees were misunderstanding that. So these two opposite groups get together because sometimes nothing unites like a common enemy. And they both were coming together, working together, these two opposite ideals to try and take care of what they viewed as a common threat. So that's who the they are. And they send their disciples because Jesus had kind of had this track record of conversation with the Pharisees where he had overturned the temp, the, the, temp, the uh, changers, the money changers the day before in the temple. And the previous interaction that he had had in the Gospel of Matthew with the Pharisees, he knew he was telling a story where they were the evil tenants at the time that were coming to kill the son. So, so where they were at in the relationship, 
between those groups was not at a good place. So that's who the they are. What did they ask? So let's get into verse 16. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful. <laughs> okay, good. All right, that's the start. Their first address. We know you're truthful. Good. He said he was the embodiment of truth over in John 14, 6. So they got that part of who he was correct. We know that you teach truthfully the way of God. Yes, we understand that to be very true about him. He has shown us perfectly the way of righteousness. You defer to no one. You do not show partiality. You don't care who they are. A lot of translations say in the end of verse 16 there. We know that you are teaching the truth and who someone is isn't impacting or changing how or what you are doing. I wonder if the people... I don't know if there are people that don't like me, but I wonder if who they were and how, what they would say about me if they were using to flattery in such a way that we see it being used here. Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not? Here's the trap. Here's the question. Here's the butter knife question. Here's the tension. Here's the fuse that's about to light off. The physical setting. The people that are around. The people bringing the question. The question itself, knowing that it's controversial. Posed in such a way that it's simply a yes or no. That it's an either or. A no, he loses the Herodians and they take him to the Roman officials who are more than likely there are guards standing within earshot. There are definitely guards in sight during Passover week at the temple courts, managing and controlling the Jewish crowds whose nationalism would be really high at this point because of what that celebration means. If he answers yes, he loses the ear of the popular people and because of their submission to the Roman government and desire to fulfill their role and structure given by God through the prophet Moses. So here's Jesus' answer. What's he going to do? Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Really interesting. Yes, the, the man of truthful understood the truth of what was going on with the scenario in the setting. Whose image? Why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him the, the denarius. So the denarius, the coin, it was the typical, normal, usual, common coin. Very similar to the coin that we use today, our currency. It would have had, uh, the, the Caesar would have, face would have been on it. As Jesus says, whose image, whose portrait, if you're reading out the NIV, whose likeness that we read as our scripture passage was read, and inscription is this, he asked them. So a really simple, common question to ask back. Caesar's, they said. So the coin, which these are common. You can buy these today. You can see these at places pretty regularly. If one of you jumped on eBay for probably about $1,000, you could literally buy one of these coins from the first century that has Caesar's portrait on it and has an inscription. Now listen to the inscription that is on it. It says... 
Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So a Jewish using this coin itself was idolatry. And a reminder, they weren't living in the theocracy that was set up for them by their forefathers. If you were in Jesus' situation, how would you answer their loaded question? Knowing that you were trying to be entrapped. Do you respond in these kind of situations aggressively attacking? Do you talk around and avoid to move on? Or is your tendency in situations like this to be condescendingly sarcastic with intent to humiliate the questioners? That is not a brag. That is confrontation for myself from the Word of God of how Jesus handled this. So what, what did they hear with this coin and Jesus taking an object lesson out of their normal everyday culture that had the inscription and had the portrait, had the image on there when he simply says, well then give to Caesar what is already his. They didn't leave the conversation amazed because Jesus taught them how to relate to the external government, although that is there. But that is not what's amazing about what he had to say. And they weren't amazed because Jesus avoided the trap. Jesus is simple, yet complete, deeply true, and also just. Because he recalled some prior knowledge that informed the question and superseded their, ident their simple identity and who they were. This word image or likeness or portrait is translated into English as uh, the, the literal translation of it would be icon. An icon. We know what an icon is. We see those all over the place as we drive around on billboards and on signs. We also know it in a brand new way because of the way college and high school sports is being changed by the name, image, and likeness, or just shortened now to NIL, that it has value, that someone's name, image, and likeness is valuable in and of itself. And that icon represents something much larger than itself. And even the way the new rules are being written, that that person doesn't just represent the university anymore. Now the move is that it's even something much bigger. And here Jesus references them back to, remember his original audience would immediately go back to Genesis chapter 1. They would go back to Genesis chapter 1 where they were created, where you and I as humans, as individuals, were created in the image of God. They would have immediately thought that through. That would have been the immediate recall that said, your parallel controversy that you want me to answer is not your external authority. The issue you need a Messiah to address the parallel isn't with Egypt and the Exodus and with Pharaoh. The parallel goes farther back in your history. It goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You were created in the image of God through sin because of trying to be like God. Instead of bearing his image, there is the fall and it's distorted. In Genesis chapter 3, God promises there's consequences for trying to be like God as the serpent tempts. Instead of uh, bearing his image on his earth. Then we see the consequences in Genesis 3, and we see the hope 
of redemption of Messiah that comes, the parallel situation that Jesus points them back to, which is why they're amazed, isn't their externals, it's their internal conflict that we share with them. A much harder king to overthrow is what Jesus addresses and amazes them. Now, the Hebrew theology is really radically different than the Roman theology, as we would expect. In the ancient world, only the king, or in this case, the Caesar, was created in the image of God, and that was written on the coin itself. But in Hebrew theology, each human is created in God's image and accountable to him. So when Jesus says, you give to God's, when he references back this image bearing and he says, you give to God's what is God's, it's not something in their pocket or in their coin purse. They recognize it as this is my life that belongs to God because I bear his image. They miss the implications and basic understandings of who God was and who God who they were, therefore, in this setting. And Jesus brings the Jewish crowd back to their basic theological truths that define their existence as a people. On that same day, later on in the day, Jesus is asked a question. Same setting, temple court, people trying to trap Jesus, people trying to get him, trying try and devalue his authority, And they ask him, what's the most important command? Jesus says, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. Now, okay, we're humans. We're creating the image of God. We start to get this separation thing. Okay, in the Greek context, um, we use all the different. Jesus is making a point to say, all of us loves God. Every part of us loves God. Our whole life loves God is devoted, committed, faithful, submissive to him. The irony in this episode with Jesus here is that the flattery statement turns out to be their best explanation of their conversation with Jesus. Can you just imagine the disciples of the Herodians and of the Pharisees going back to their leaders? Oh, well, how'd it go? Obviously, there's not, a, you know, there's not some big problem going on in the temple court. What happened? And them explaining to him, and hey, turns out, guys, uh, he is a really good teacher full of truth, and he doesn't care who we are. He's going to teach the way of God regardless. Jesus' ultimate eternal hope of transformation is from the inside out instead of the lesser temporary hope of an external transformation. Jesus calls us back to our, the most core part of who we are as an image bearer of God, being restored from our distorted image of sin in this process that we call sanctification. And that was why they left amazed and marveled in their conversation. The challenge for us today and why we should be amazed today isn't a whole lot different. It's really, really easy in our culture. In fact, some culture, some infrastructure of our culture calls us to compartmentalize thinking and therefore living. 
compartmentalized thinking and living. And it is a challenge for us as believers that we are holistically and that every part of us is faithfully bearing the image of God to his world and to his, <clears throat> and to his image, to his earth and his creation. See, there are all kinds of parts of our lives that we like to withhold and we like to compartmentalize that we don't want to give to God. We don't want to submit to God. We don't want to give back what belongs to him. We don't want to give back what he has already paid for at the death at the cross, whether it be how we relate with money, how we relate with time, our sexuality, the different hobbies that we may be into, how we treat others. Maybe it's how we act with our personal health, our friends, whatever it is, this holistic view, it all comes underneath this God who supersedes all earthly authority. The gospel is that all of us as image bearers, it's permeating all of life. I love the slogan of my alma mater, Oklahoma Baptist University, all of life, all for Jesus. On Wednesday at OBA Chapel, our chapel speaker used an illustration to illustrate this exact point with the difference between a pancake and a waffle. A, wa a pancake is one whole unit of breakfast deliciousness. A waffle is segmented into fours, and then it's segmented into little squares. And so what happens when you pour the syrup on it? It gets in segments, some segments and some squares, and it doesn't get in all of it, as opposed to the pancake where it just oozes all around and immerses. A great illustration for our student body of this profound truth to grasp and understand. Our image and therefore God's glory is not segmented into quarters, but it is holistic. Church, we belong to God. We were purchased in our atonement for Him. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit with the guarantee of our full restoration and the future return of Christ that we look forward to. We are challenged again and amazed by what Jesus said because we find ourselves in a culture that worships the individual, independent self and not the God who has imprinted his image onto that self. We live in a culture that contrasts with our Christian faith, where our values find contrast, where the value of personal happiness supersedes a holiness from being belonging to God. The value of self-actualization in all of its hundreds of ways that we express it in our culture supersedes the spirit actualization to serve and use our gifts for the building up of others and not ourselves for God's glory as image bearers. As image bearers belonging to God, we have a contrast with the value of self-fulfillment that supersedes sacrificial love of others. We have a conflict where education's end game is about financial gain and not about gaining a rich, flourishing life from God's perspective. As image bearers belonging to God, we live in a culture with the contrast or the value, the ultimate value of comfort and convenience that supersedes being a blessing and being a servant. The challenge from this passage is to give to God's what is God's. And using 
the Roman coin as an object lesson, we're taken back to Genesis 1. And we're delighted in the future of Revelation when that image is restored. And we're culminated in the fact that Jesus is the exact representation, the fulfillment where God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in. It's you. And it's all of you. My hope is that you learned well this morning and that this deep dive in this scene of Jesus' life. May you be reminded every time you use physical U.S. currency with a government image and a government inscription imprinted on it. May it cause you to the greater, more profound truth of God's imprint and the privilege of representing Him and His Son's salvation to His creation. Let me pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for purchasing us so that we could belong to You, that the separation that came because of sin can be restored in your Son, the fullness of your image, and the fact, God, that you would sacrifice yourself for us to belong to you, to be your people. Father, may we be amazed that we get to represent you. Father, and as we have confessed and as we have committed and celebrated and petitioned, may we do that really well wherever you place us on your planet. In Jesus' name, amen.